Hey, it's Jen. And before we jump in, I just want to mention that for some of these news topics today, the story is rapidly developing and things may have changed by the time you hear the podcast. For the latest on everything, keep up with your public radio station and follow updates at NPR.org. Okay, with that, let's jump into the news roundup. I'm Jen White, and it's time for the News Roundup. A freight train derailed in Ohio two weeks ago, but the toxic chemicals it spilled is causing growing concern. This is just turning into one nightmare, if you ask me. You just don't flip from, the air is bad, the air is safe, oh, we're going to evacuate. None of this is making any sense. The governor in neighboring Pennsylvania is now weighing in. He says Norfolk Southern's response to the disaster has put first responders and residents, quote, at significant risk. We'll talk about that this hour and also this. You should know this about me. I don't put up with bullies. And when you kick back, it hurts them more if you're wearing heels. I'm Nikki Haley, and I'm running for president. As always, plenty of politics to get to. Keeping us on track this week, Eva McKend, national politics reporter for CNN. Eva, welcome back. Good to be with you, Jen. Also with us, Wendy Benjaminson, Wendy's deputy managing editor at Bloomberg. Hey, Wendy. Hey, glad to be here. And Josh Meyer covers domestic security for USA Today. Josh, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Jen. Thanks. It took a while, but on Thursday, President Biden broke his silence on the balloons. He says the intelligence agencies have no indication that three objects shot down in recent days were surveillance craft from China or any other power. Republican Senator Rubio spoke to ABC News about a closed briefing he and others have been given on these three incidents, and he called on the president to say more. What is unusual is that this is the first time in American history, 65 years since NORAD was set up, that we've shot anything down, not to mention three things over three days last weekend. Mm -hmm. And so I do think that merits the president directly addressing why those things were shot down and what we know up to this point. Nothing they've talked to us about with regards to those three should be classified because it's really not the type of thing you classify. Josh, what more do we know about this? Well, I mean, this is a very (laughs) fast-moving story. I'm trying to avoid the puns that we've been making all week (laughs) about this, about how it's a ballooning story and, uh, you know, rising in altitude. But, um, you know, I think the point is that we don't know a lot about these three balloons that were shot down because they haven't been recovered. Some of them are in deep Arctic water. Some of them are over ice. I think that they do know, the intelligence community does know with some certainty that they are not Chinese spy balloons like the first one, which raises a lot of questions about, you know, what, what they knew when they knew it. Uh, How many balloons have we missed? When did they start flying above U.S. airspace? And, um, you know, there's also been some reporting out, uh, which has been confirmed by intelligence officials and even President Biden, that the first balloon, which was which was indeed a uh, Chinese spy balloon, um, accidentally entered uh, U.S. airspace, at least continental U.S. airspace, um, and then decided to keep going and and um, eavesdropping on sensitive military sites. But there's a lot of questions now, and I think the Biden administration uh, has not been as transparent about it um, as they could be, even after President Biden's um, you know, address uh, yesterday about it. Well, we're seeing reports from Politico and others that the FBI is reportedly reaching out to an amateur club in Illinois. Uh, this club flies high-altitude balloons. Do you, have you heard anything about this? I did. I read that story last night. This is a Boy Scout troop there, and they lost their balloon. Um, And so uh, there's some indications that this might have been one of the ones that was shot down. But, you know, again, that raises a lot of questions 
Um, you know, I, I understand that the military and the intelligence community recalibrated their radar systems to make them much more sensitive so that they could get much smaller objects. But, you know, you had Van uh, General Van Herc, who's the commander of NORAD, uh, which is in charge of this, uh, you know, protecting U.S. space, saying at the very outset of this that we, there was a domain awareness gap in terms of what we were tracking, uh, what we knew about the targets, and whether we should have shot them down before they entered U.S. airspace. So, again, lots of questions about this, and I think this is going to play out out over the next couple of weeks and, and probably months. Well, I want to talk more about military concerns in a moment, but Eva, how much political pressure is the White House under to share more? So Republicans have been pretty vocal about this, very critical. Their argument, if especially on the Chinese spy balloon, if we were tracking this for so long when it left from when it left China, why did it take so long to literally pull the trigger? But the administration had a lot to weigh here. Uh, President Biden reiterated this in his first formal remarks, that they wanted to make sure that the uh, conditions were safe, that they are thinking about this as really a geopolitical relationship with China. They want to recover the balloon, right, because they still don't have a full understanding of its capabilities. And uh, they don't want to escalate tensions with China. So a lot went into this, a lot clearly going on behind the scenes. And we see the administration sort of walking this tightrope on this issue. They also didn't want to come out too early. Uh, President Biden faced a lot of pressure to level with the public and give more information. But there was fear internally that if he spoke too soon, he might have been giving uh, bad information. Well, on Wednesday, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin addressed the issue in an interview with NBC News. We don't know how frequently these uh, these things may or may not have have uh, appeared in our airspace. We're learning a lot more about that. Uh, We typically are focused on things that are moving fast. Uh, So it's a bit more difficult to collect on slow-moving objects like a balloon. Now, President Biden mentioned he'd look into setting up new parameters to guard American airspace. Josh, I mean, what's on the table right now? You know, they've uh, Biden announced that they want to set up a sort of an informal task force, which is what the government always does when they don't know what to do about something. But, you know, I think that, um, you know, calibrating the the radar is a big uh, issue, deciding, you know, how, how you know, if they don't want to start shooting down Boy Scout balloons all the time. Again, we don't know if that's what it was, but it does raise, uh, you know, bigger issues about the uh, country's air defense and radar systems. And again, Jen, you know, these are systems that we spend billions and billions of dollars about, uh, dollars on. I mean, we have this new sort of front in the geopolitical wars, which is the Arctic. As the Arctic, you know, warms, there's more shipping lanes and there's more fights over resources and so forth. So we've spent a tremendous amount of time you know with Canada who's our joint partner in NORAD looking at at making sure that our surveillance and detection capabilities uh, you know to the north are, are 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 as good as they can be and so I think that this shows that we do need a lot of research and an interagency system to look at what's going on um, how to better uh, anticipate these again it's come out over just the last few days that we were watching the balloon from the minute it left Hainan Island, which is where China's kind of spy center is, um, and tracked it all the way here. So it raises questions about why we didn't stop it earlier. Uh, Canada probably could have because it was in Canada's airspace. Um, And I think that, you know, we're going to be trying to figure out exactly what we need to do going forward to make sure that we catch the right things coming onto our radar screens and and ignore the the balloons or the small things that we that we need to ignore. Real quickly, Josh, we got this question from Claudia in Ohio who says, is there any way to retrieve the balloons, especially the smaller ones, other than shooting them down? 
You know, I talked to John Bolton, the former national security advisor, about that, and he he actually had a pretty good idea, which was just put a small hole in the balloon and let it sort of, you know, um, you know, dissipate, I guess, and just, you know, sink to the ground instead of blowing it out of the sky. I think we've looked at a lot of different potential um, scenarios for this. The first balloon, the Chinese spy balloon, was up at between 60 and 80,000 feet. So that's even higher than most of our fighter jets fly. So that would have been tough. But they've looked at a lot of different you know, um, possibilities here. I don't know if there's a great way to do it. I do think that you know, firing a Sidewinder missile or something as big as we have been using to shoot these down you know, probably obliterates some of the um, tech that's on board and, and makes it harder for us to recover it and see what's going on. So, you know, again, I have a lot more questions than I have answers. And the more I re- you know report on this, the more I think that there's a lot more stories to do about it uh, on a broader level. And we haven't even gotten into satellites. China has hundreds of spy satellites up in the air. And there's a lot of questions about why they even needed a balloon to be in this lower level band of the atmosphere, uh, collecting stuff when they can be collecting it from space. And we have to assume that they're very aggressive in their collection uh, capabilities um, and interests uh, from the satellites as well. Well, we'll continue to follow that story. In the meantime, Democrat Dianne Feinstein confirmed on Monday that she will not seek re-election in 2024. The 89-year-old California senator is the oldest member of Congress. She's faced questions in recent years about her cognitive health. Former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi called Senator Feinstein a titan, a champion for the Golden State, and someone who broke barriers as the first woman to serve as mayor of San Francisco. Wendy, what opportunity does this open up for those who want to replace her? It's a huge opportunity. Uh, California Senate seat um, is in the offing, and it looks like um, this will be one of, if not the most expensive Senate race in U.S. history. California is a massive media, has several massive media markets, and you have some very ambitious and very well-funded candidates ready to take over. Those are Katie Porter. She's um, well known for flipping an Orange County Republican district in 2018. You have Adam Schiff, the House Intelligence Chairman um, in the previous House, who really made a name for himself, you know, as the sort of uh, driving force behind the Trump resistance, if you will. And then Barbara Lee, who is from Oakland, she's progressive, she's African-American, which a lot of people feel it's time for another black woman in the Senate um, since Kamala Harris left. And so these three and probably many, many more are going to jump into this race. It's the News Roundup. Plenty more still ahead. Stay with us. Let's get back to the news roundup. On the balloon story, we got this question from Sue. Hobbyists of amateur rocketry, not model rocketry, are required to file a flight plan and receive permission from the FAA for any flight expected to exceed 10,000 feet in altitude. Why aren't other groups required to notify or receive the same permission? Josh, any insight? You know, I think that's one of the things that Biden is appointing, you know, some sort of informal task force to look at. I think there's a hodgepodge of state, local and federal laws and requirements and policies, and it's just very confusing. So, you know, I don't think every Boy Scout troop needs to file a disclosure with the Pentagon saying that they're flying a balloon or, you know, if you want to take your kids out and fly a kite. But, you know, there there are equities here that they have to, um, you know, uh, re- 
resolve and figure out what to do about this. So, um, you know, in some ways, this is sort of, once again, a wake up call that we need to be doing something differently or better. Um, it remains to be seen what we're going to do. But, um, you know, it's, it's a tough problem. I think the biggest problem, though, is finding out who is, you know, actually spying on us and what they're trying to do and uh, what their intentions are, especially with China. I mean, for me, one of the most interesting things was when Biden finally did speak yesterday. Um, afterwards, instead of taking questions, he got yelled at by about a you know hundred reporters trying to get a question in, and it was so confusing that he didn't really get to answer anything. So he called uh, Peter Alexander, an NBC reporter, afterwards to sort of calmly say what he wanted to do. And one of the most important things he said was he doesn't want to start a war with China, and that he thinks Xi Jinping and he need to talk this out. So I think that that's a step in the right direction. Um, and I think that, you know, the other issues will be resolved at some point, probably not for months or years, but, um, you know, at least they'll be working on it. Well, let's pivot to some other news. On Tuesday, the Senate confirmed the 100th judge nominated by President Biden since he took office. Democrats were quick to take a victory lap, celebrating the diverse backgrounds of those appointed, but Republicans expressed their concerns. Here's Texas Senator Ted Cruz. Many of these nominees are quite literally the most extreme judicial nominees I've seen in 10 years on the Senate. Part of the reason the Democrat majority is trying to move 29 nominees in one morning is to flood the zone with so many bad nominees that nobody can focus on how utterly unqualified these nominees are to be judges. Eva, what can you tell us about who's being nominated to these positions? Well, the administration is putting forward, yes, you know, atypical, I think, folks than what we have seen previously. So a lot of these candidates are younger, liberal, more diverse in terms of skill set as well. So not in terms of just racially and ethnically diverse, but in terms of being public defenders, civil rights lawyers, labor lawyers. And there was a lot of attention in the previous administration under President Trump in coordination with then Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell about how the federal judiciary was being remade. Well, the Biden administration and Democrats are essentially doing the same thing, um, using the the power that they have to uh, uh, elevate their candidates to these really important roles. You know, when you think about judges, this has generational implications. And now that Democrats no longer control the House, this is the few areas, I think, where the administration can continue to see some wins because they were able to not only main, maintain control in the Senate, but expand, expand, their, um, expand their numbers in the Senate. Wendy, what kinds of nominees did we see put forward during the prior administration? In the prior administration, we had uh, nominees who were just as political in terms of being Republican and conservative, you know, literal believers in the, you know, black letter law, um, as we see now on the Democratic side. And it's really because of something Eva, you know, suggested, which is that it you only need a simple majority in the Senate anymore to confirm a judge. It used to be more, 60 or two-thirds. And that means that whoever is in power, they get the judges they want, and there is no need to compromise on a judge who may be in the middle or moderate or something like that. And so I'm not saying that none of the judges on either side can be in the center or moderate or that they won't rule on the law, but you do have people who, Ted Cruz can say this about them, and 
Democrats said, um, you know, highly critical things about the politics, the politics, which shouldn't exist, in the judicial nominees that, that Trump nominated. So we're in this sort of vicious cycle where one side is just going to get back at the other side and the pendulum will swing back and forth and back and forth until we can come to some sort of moderation. Well, in a statement, Biden said, quote, strengthening the federal judiciary with extraordinarily qualified judges who are devoted to our Constitution and the rule of law has been among my proudest work in office, end quote. Eva, how have the politics around the judicial nomination process changed in the last decade or so? Was it always this partisan? It wasn't. This was, this used to be an area where the parties could agree. These weren't, this wasn't typically a party line vote. Um, But now, you know, even this has sort of dissolved. And I think that speaks to that speaks to the current climate uh, in Congress now, where there are very few areas where you are going to get bipartisan uh, agreement. But listen, the Democrats on the Judiciary Committee, they are pretty unified in terms of advancing these judges and working with the administration to do so. So I don't really see this changing. And then when the pendulum swings in the other direction, like Wendy says, uh, Democrats will gripe about Republican nominees. Well, let's turn to news from the GOP. On Thursday, a Georgia judge published parts of a report from a grand jury investigating former President Donald Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election. An excerpt from the report revealed that a majority of the jury believed some witnesses may have lied under oath while testifying. The jury recommended charges against some of the witnesses, though those witnesses aren't named in the published report. Eva, tell us more about what we learned from this excerpt of the report. Yeah, so there were two key findings here. Uh, We didn't learn much because not a lot was revealed, but we know that the grand jury came to the conclusion, um, no surprise here, that, that there was no widespread voter fraud in the 2020 election. And then they also suggested that they believe that the uh, the prosecutor here, Fannie Willis, should uh, look into, uh, they believe that someone committed perjury, that someone before them was not telling the truth. Uh, perjury may have been committed by one or more witnesses testifying uh, before it. That was uh, according to portions of the report that was in fact disclosed. So we know that this uh, this uh, body met for a long time. Uh, we know that the uh, investigation started in early 2021 and that they heard from really a range of uh, people involved in the uh, 2020 election. Uh, but we don't, we didn't hear anything in terms of Uh, what charging recommendations that they have made, but they did listen to 75 witnesses under oath. Uh, But this is largely still a secret report. Well, Eva, why did the judge make this public? I think because there uh, ultimately there was a, uh, I think the the public interest was high to have this information, but uh, I think we, uh, they determined that not all of it was going to be released and at this point, what we know is that Fonnie Willis, eventually, she said that her decision on whether to bring charges uh, will be imminent. So we saw the former president sort of saying that he was vindicated by uh, the little bit of information we received yesterday, but a, a lot still to come here, Jen. Wendy, you wanted to jump in here. <laughs> yes, I did. Thank you. Actually, a number of news organizations sued to have this released. 
um, because it is a special purpose grand jury that will not give charges. These three sections, the introduction, the conclusion, and the section that Eva um, spoke about, about perjury, um, were the only three of eight sections that were released, in fact, yesterday. And um, a lot of this, 75 witnesses, none of them Trump, did testify. We don't know who perjured themselves. Rudy Giuliani's lawyer says it wasn't him. John Eastman, who was uh, one of the attorneys involved in January 6th, says it wasn't him. Um, and so, you know, we don't know exactly who might be charged. But yes, we are all, you know, on our, on our toes waiting for the actual indictments to come up. Well, former Vice President Mike Pence is preparing to fight a special counsel subpoena to testify about efforts to overturn the 2020 election. That's according to Politico and other news organizations. Pence will try to argue that his position as president of the Senate at the time protects him from DOJ demands. Josh, why is Pence fighting the subpoena? You know, I think he's fighting it on a matter of principle. Um, I mean, he's he's been very hot and cold on this about whether he wants to cooperate with investigators, mostly cold. He hasn't really wanted to cooperate. Um, but, um, you know, I think it's an indication that that special counsel Jack Smith is 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 really playing hardball here. And, you know, I wanted to mention that with Fonnie Willis, too, in, in, in Atlanta. I mean, what she's she the said Georgia clearly, DA, we should say. Right. Yes. Excuse me. Um, so, I mean, what she said is that, um, you know, uh, I mean, what the grand jury said in that case is that clearly uh, indictments are are probably forthcoming that they recommended them. The fact that the judge ordered extensive redactions of the special grand jury's report to protect due process rights uh, really is an indicator that they had recommended indictments. So it's it's a it, it remains to be seen on the question of, uh, of Pence. Um, you know, I think that it's not surprising that he would fight the special counsel subpoena, but it is an indication that Jack Smith, now that he's back in the United States and overseeing the special counsel investigation, really is playing hardball. And I think that he has subpoenaed others, too. Um, I, I can't remember if Mark Meadows is one of them, but there's a lot more subpoenas that have come out, and there's going to be a lot of this ratcheting up of, vi- of witnesses in, in, in the sense that, you know, making sure that they testify uh, and implicate others uh, that might have been involved in illegal activities. So um, I'm looking forward to seeing what comes next. You say it's not surprising that Pence is fighting the subpoena, but how strong is his argument? You know, I think this, I mean, a lot of this is uncharted waters, Jen. So I think that, um, you know, he does have some uh, chance, I think, of, of being able to stave this off. There's also the question of whether he would want to informally cooperate. A lot of times witnesses in these cases uh, officially fight a subpoena just so that there's no precedent established and so they don't look like they're, um, you know, just voluntarily cooperating with it. But then they'll 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 find some other accommodation in which they can be questioned. Um, so, you know, I, I again, I wasn't surprised by this. I'm, I'm very eager to see what else uh, special counsel Jack Smith has uh, coming. And, and of course, everybody, I think, wants to hear from Pence. I mean, he is the one person in all of this who can really, I think, speak to what Trump's uh, state of mind was, the phone calls that Trump made to Pence, his efforts to uh, pressure Pence into, quote, do the right thing, unquote, in terms of confirming this slate of uh, alternative candidates that he wanted to put forward instead of the ones, uh, you know, put forth by the Electoral College and by the voters. So Pence is in the middle of all this, and whether he likes it or not, I think he's going to um, stay in the middle of it for quite some time. While the Republican Party continues to face the fallout from the 2020 election, some GOP members are looking ahead to 2024. I'm a grateful American citizen who knows our best days are yet to come if we unite and fight to save our country.
I have devoted my life to this fight, and I'm just getting started. For a strong America, for a proud America, I am running for president of the United States of America. That's former South Carolina governor and former U.S. ambassador to the U.N., Nikki Haley, announcing her bid for president on Wednesday. Eva, how popular is Haley within the GOP? Well, she, well, right now, the, the polling suggests that a lot of people actually don't know her, uh, but she has been, you know, on the conservative scene for a long time. And I think by coming out early, she really was trying to distinguish herself in terms of uh, getting the attention of donors and, um, and also to get, gain some kind of fundraising advantage. But she clearly was trying to brand herself as the future of the Republican Party. She talked about how America had to end this sense of self-loathing. And something that really struck me about her announcement, something that she consistently says, is that America is not a racist country. I think that some people would disagree with her uh, on that one, uh, especially on the left. And I've covered these political events for a long time. I've been to many Republican rallies. For our listening audience, I'm a black woman. And sometimes, um, not even when I don't even invite questions about race, I will get uh, confronted with uh, or by white conservatives at these rallies who make a very specific point to say, and listen, I just want to let you know I am not racist. And so she really, by uh, emphasizing this so much in her, uh, in her speech, really, I think, was speaking to a sensitivity there, uh, a sort of a craving for, for reassurance among some white conservatives that we aren't racist. And she's uh, maybe a powerful messenger for that, being the daughter of immigrants and being an Indian-American woman. Well, Utah Senator Mitt Romney warned this week of the danger of too many people getting in the race for 2024 and all of them losing out to Donald Trump for the nomination. Seventeen major candidates filed to run for the GOP nomination in 2016. I mean, Wendy, what, if anything, is different this time around? Well, I think we have two bulls in the china shop, if you will, at this point. We have Donald Trump, who will still get 25 to 30 percent of that GOP base always. And then you also have Ron DeSantis in the wings who may take another chunk of that. The more people who get in the race, the more it is diffused, the more the money is is spread thin, the more the attention is spread thin, and um, the more than these two, no one else can stand out except perhaps those two, and that narrows the choice for Republican voters. I just wanted to add something on the the Nikki Haley thing. There was a sound clip you played earlier, Jen, in which she said, I don't put up with bullies. The trouble is, uh, for her campaign, she did put up with a bully. She worked for Donald Trump for a number of years as his UN ambassador. To her personally, he has always seemed more gentle than he has to some of his other um, staff, especially men, um, but he hasn't you know, teased her or called her silly names or anything. But she worked for him for a while. Then she said she wouldn't run if he did. Then he got in the race. Then she runs. So it's kind of hard to see where she is on the map. We'll be back with more of the News Roundup after this quick break. Music. 
Okay, back to the roundup. Let's move on to a story that's been playing out for weeks on the border of Ohio and Pennsylvania. Earlier this month, a train carrying hazardous chemicals derailed in East Palestine, Ohio, and released toxic materials near the town. Last week, crews burned some of the chemicals through what officials called a, quote, controlled explosion. Residents near the site were under a mandatory evacuation, which has since been lifted. But those in the area are still concerned for their own safety and the environment. Now the railroad company Norfolk Southern is under fire for pulling out of a planned meeting with local residents. Josh, what more can you tell us about this derailment? Well, I'm going to resist the urge to call the response to this a train wreck, um, but it's it's been bad. I mean, I think that basically, you know, Pennsylvania's got a new governor, Josh Shapiro. Um, he was the secretary of state before, you may recall, but um, he's been really, um, you know, railing against the, uh, the airline, Norfolk Southern, for mishandling the response to this. And I think that he, you know, according to a letter that he sent them and other comments that he's made, you know, he said that the railroad company... Uh, broke off from the rest of the state and local emergency management officials on the ground, made unilateral decisions and created confusion for first responders when the fr- when the train wreck first happened. But then um, they were, you know, according to him and some other uh, critics, that they've been trying to essentially cover up what happened or at least try to explore other ways, alternative courses of action is the way he put it, including some that Shapiro said may have kept the rail line closed uh, or they didn't explore some that would have kept the rail line closed longer, but could have resulted in a safer all over safer overall approach for first responders, residents, and the environment. And what he's saying there is that basically they're putting profits over the safety of the people living in the in the area. One of the chemicals, um, you know. Uh, it, vinyl chloride it's a colorless gas uh, but it's used uh, in in making plastic products but it's very very carcinogenic it's very toxic Uh, it can get into the water supply and be ingested so I think that the the you know the residents there have every right to be upset at the response to this and um, one of the reasons they broke off the meeting uh, with the company or with the company broke off the meeting is the the level of trust here is about zero The, the residents don't trust uh, Norfolk Southern to be telling them the truth. And Norfolk Southern actually said that they were afraid that their employees who met with the residents uh, would be uh, subject to potential violence. So it's it's um, it's not a good situation. Well, the investigation into the derailment is continuing and, and cleanup is happening, but residents and the mayor are calling for more. The Ohio Department of Natural Resources says the spill has killed around 3,500 small fish across multiple streams in the area. And Kelly Felger is an East Palestine resident. Here she is speaking to CNN. Okay, well, if you're afraid that somebody from Palestine is going to hurt your employees, what exactly did you do to us? You feel the anger and frustration. I'm scared. From my family. I'm scared from my town. I grew up here. I'm related to 50% of them. Eva, what what's the path forward here? You have residents who are afraid to go back to their homes. There's the ongoing concern about the impact on the environment. And oftentimes with these types of chemical spills, we're not looking at a short-term fix. We're talking long-term. That's right, Jen. And the EPA uh, administrator you know, says he and the administration will be there for the long haul. But certainly you heard the anxiety of residents um, EPA officials say that the the air is safe and that the water is safe to drink, except those with private wells should use uh, bottled water just in case. But you still have some residents reporting headaches and rashes 
and have deep concern. And it is sort of unfathomable that um, that this company did not show up uh, this week at this at this meeting. Norfolk Southern didn't show up to at least explain themselves to the residents. They cited safety concerns, but they could have. Uh, you know, presumably made an attempt to join remotely or this powerful company had security if they were so concerned about their personnel. And you have these uh, residents here that are sort of just left to, to, to deal with the mess, very literally. Well, another Norfolk Southern train derailed this Thursday, this time in southeast Michigan. About 30 cars went off the track. Officials say only one car was carrying hazardous material, but it was not damaged or leaking. Josh, is this, is this raising any questions about the way we're transporting hazardous material across the country and the potential exposure to communities? You know that's a that's a good question, Jen, and I, and I think it is. I mean, I've um, you know I'm not you know the, mo- the world's foremost expert on this, but I have been reading, you know, some good coverage of this. And one of the issues is that the train, you know, it, it's not just the recession, but just the the just general economics, globalization, what have you. That that the train companies now are using more uh, cars on their trains. They're they're packing them tighter and trying to squeeze more in uh, to just sort of you know make sure that they can still make a profit off of this. And the problem with that, of course, is that when you try to stop a train, if there's, you know, 80 cars behind it instead of 40 um, or, or, you know, something like that, it's a lot harder to stop. And there's a lot of uh, when corners are cut like this and, and, and you're trying to squeeze as much profit out of it as you can, um, you know, there's going to be some problems. And I think that, you know, that that second train um uh, you know, is an, is an example of that. And it's, it's something that, um, you know, I haven't looked to see if this is something that's been happening over the last couple of years or not, but I do know that it is more frequent now than it has been a few decades ago. So it's, that's a problem. Um, I don't know if we need to, you know, appoint some sort of task force again, like we did with the balloons to look at this, but you know, it's a problem. And I think, um, you know, one of the problems in East Palestine is, you know, people, have told local media there that their chickens have died suddenly, their pets have fallen ill. So I think that there's a lot of mistrust with what the response is, not just by the company, but also by by the government in in giving people the kind of answers and the transparency that they need to to move forward with this. I mean, even the mayor uh, basically said yesterday that um, you know he's uh, and he's a resident of East Palestine. He said that you know I have a lot of questions too, and I I'm not getting the answers that I need. So he's going to keep. Um, He's going to keep pushing for this. This is Trent Conaway, who's the East Palestine's mayor. Let's turn to this story out of Michigan. On Monday, a gunman killed three Michigan State University students and injured five others. Police say sophomores Ariel Anderson and Brian Frazier and junior Alexandria Werner were killed. Here's what police had to say in a briefing on Thursday. The LPD officers received a call that uh, subject matching that description was walking down the street, and this was on Lake Lansing Road near Large Street, city of Lansing. Uh, officers made contact, two LBD officers made contact with the uh, shooter, uh, approximately 20 feet from McRae. Uh, they exited their vehicle, ordered him to put his show his hands. Uh, however, he produced a weapon and then uh, killed himself. In the days since, Wendy, what have we learned about the shooter? Well, uh, we have learned about the shooter that the laws on the book said there is no way he should have had a weapon. So something failed again. Something failed again. A man who shouldn't have had a weapon by the law had a weapon and went on this rampage. He went to 
two buildings. He had no connection to the university at all. This wasn't any sort of personal beef. Um, he, uh, you know, went to two different buildings and um, apparently was upset about a death in the family or other things. So clearly, if that is how he reacts to personal grief, he must have had uh, mental health issues. So all of these things that have just were should have been addressed were not. And one of the things about the story that broke my heart, especially as a parent, was that some of the students at Michigan State are survivors of other mass shootings. There was a Sandy Hook survivor. And, um, you know, these kids shouldn't have to go through this once in their life, let alone twice. Hmm. Well, during the midterm elections, Michigan's legislature flipped to a Democratic majority for the first time in 40 years, but they have just a single vote advantage in both the House and Senate. Let's hear from Michigan Senate Majority Leader Winnie Brinks. To those who say it is too soon, that we have to let people mourn and heal first, that we, should be, that we shouldn't be talking about legislation yet, I reject the notion that we cannot do both simultaneously. I ask everyone in this chamber to join me in doing everything in our power to both love and legislate in the coming days and weeks. Let's not let our kids down again. Eva, what are Democratic lawmakers in Michigan pushing for, and are they likely to get it? That is to be determined. I know that the, the political uh, will sometimes is not always there to see uh, gun uh, safety legislation advance. But we do know that this is a priority of the Democratic governor, Gretchen Whitmer. You know, she said this week, our campuses, churches, classrooms, and communities should not be battlefields. So I don't know if the Michigan state legislature will be able to achieve this. But uh, certainly in the wake of this tragedy, this is front and center once again. And Democrats are looking for universal background checks. They want red flag laws. They want safe storage laws. Wendy, when we look at the politics in Michigan, do you think it's likely that with that slim majority, they may be able to get anything passed? Maybe. You know, Michigan, um, you know, the urban areas of Michigan are probably, the representatives of those areas are probably all for it. But then the vast amount of Michigan is rural. It's great hunting. There's a lot of people who really believe that, you know, responsible people should be free to own weapons and for hunting and recreational purposes. And that really slows um, these sort of laws down. Let's briefly touch on a story in New York this week. The man who killed 10 people at a grocery store in a predominantly black area of Buffalo last May was sentenced to life in prison. During court proceedings, the white 19-year-old shooter apologized for shooting and killing, quote, people because they were black. I'm going to just briefly pivot to the economy. The latest figures from the Consumer Price Index show inflation rose 6.4% in January. That's compared to last year. It's a drop from the 9% high in June of last year, but this isn't as much of a decline as economists had hoped. Wendy, inflation remains well above the Federal Reserve's 2% goal. What's the game plan here from the Fed? The game plan is to, uh, Jen, is to raise interest rates even higher. And the situation, the latest sign was in the producer price index, which came out on Friday, which are wholesale prices, which, of course, is what drives retail prices. And there is no pressure to, and, and 
energy prices also bolstered the producer price index to go up. And because of the tight job market, because so many of us have jobs and have money to pay for things, there is no pressure to reduce retail prices. And so the Federal Reserve is talking now about some of the governors were talking about a 50 basis point hike of half a percentage point hike. And that's in the most favorable interest rate. And this is on the heels of three or four previous interest rate hikes. So if you're buying a car, if you have an adjustable rate mortgage, if you have a credit card balance, all of those are going to go up and they're much higher than the base rate that the Federal Reserve offers banks. Well, there's time to touch on one more story. News out of Tesla this week. On Thursday, the company received 300, or rather recalled, 363,000 cars equipped with the company's self-driving software. A notice posted on the National Highway Traffic Safety Association's website said cars could act unsafely in intersections. The notice came out just a day after President Biden praised Elon Musk and the company for saying they will open 7,500 charging stations to other electric vehicles by 2024. President Biden announced his plans during his State of the Union address to rapidly expand the number of electric vehicle charging stations across the U.S. Clean energy to cut pollution and create jobs in communities often left behind. We're going to build 500,000 electric vehicle charging stations installed across the country by tens of thousands of IBW workers. Eva, why is the Biden administration setting their eyes on EVs and, and what role Tesla could play in their plans? Well, this has long been a priority of uh, of the administration and also environmental activists. They see that this is an area where... It, they can really advance in terms of achieving some of their environmental goals. Unfortunately, it comes at a bad time for Tesla with the news this week. And critics have long warned about this uh, full safe driving mechanism and have had concerns about uh, this technology. So uh, the administration will have to sort of uh, balance that as they try to um, as they try to make um, gains in this other area. Um, in just a quick sentence, I'd love to hear what other stories you're watching this week. Maybe stories we didn't get to. Josh? Uh, well, next week is the first anniversary of the Russia war in Ukraine. Uh, so I'm working on a story about how 15,000 uh, or potentially more children were deported from Ukraine to Russia, and a lot of them haven't been able to get back to their parents. Wendy, what about you? I'm interested in the Supreme Court arguments Tuesday on that centers on the algorithmic ads that Google gives you when you do searches and other tech companies, and whether Google and other companies should be held liable. Eva? I'm covering the continued fallout of embattled Congressman George Santos. So following those threads and trying to get accountability for the residents in New York's District 3. That's Eva McCann, national politics reporter for CNN. Wendy Benjaminson, deputy managing editor at Bloomberg News. And Josh Meyer, he covers domestic security for USA Today. Thanks to you all. Before we go, a remembrance. Hollywood is paying tribute to the film and TV icon Raquel Welch. Reese Witherspoon said Welch was, quote, elegant, professional, and glamorous beyond belief. The Guardian reports she had only three lines in the 1966 film fantasy One Million Years B.C. Introducing the fabulous Raquel Welch, the sensational star discovery of this or any other year in One Million Years B.C. See her as Loana the Fair One who deserted her tribe and risked her life to follow Tumac of the Rock People.
but she attained sex symbol status from the role in which she dressed in a fur-lined bikini, an image that sold in the millions and was described by the feminist critic Camille Paglia as fierce, passionate, and dangerously physical. Raquel Welch was 82. We'll be back with the global edition of the News Roundup in just a moment. This is 1A. Now let's get into some of the biggest headlines from around the world. It's the global edition of the News Roundup. It's been 10 days since twin earthquakes and several aftershocks hit Syria and Turkey. The death toll is now at least 41,000. Recovery and aid groups are working around the clock to get immediate supplies, medicines, and shelter to survivors. We're joined now by Dr. Amjad Ras, president of the Syrian American Medical Society. He joins us from Detroit. Dr. Amjad, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And in Istanbul, Turkey, we have Gordon Wilcox. He's Deputy Director of Emergency Response for Direct Relief. Gordon, thanks for joining us. No problem. Nice to be here. Dr. Ross, the United Nations launched a funding appeal for $1 billion to help humanitarian agencies in Turkey assist millions of people affected by last week's earthquakes. Can you give us a sense of the situation on the ground in some of the areas you visited? Yes, I was there a few days ago. I spent three, day, three days inside in the northwest Syria. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I am a practicing physician here in the U.S., and uh, I do this as a volunteer. And uh, over the years, I've witnessed uh, all kinds of uh, destruction in Syria, from barrel bombings to, to uh, major displacement and uh, chemical attacks. This is beyond all of those combined what's how it happened 10 days ago beyond in Turkey and Syria it's I cannot describe it people are on the street seeking help or shelters or uh, burying their dead or uh, trying to rescue their loved ones from under rubble uh, or uh, trying to assist uh, aid uh, agencies uh, so it just it's beyond when I was there the UN had not really uh, reached uh, the area yet in the emergency response, it was uh, uh, strictly the uh, the local organizations uh, and the Syrian organization, like the Syrian American Medical Society and many others, uh, working on the ground. And uh, it's just uh, so many personal stories from babies uh, being born under the rubble and, and uh, kids lost their parents, families lost their lives. And, and so on. It's something I, I wish I would never witness in my lifetime. Gordon, how is Direct Relief working with local partners to, to get medical aid to the people most in need right now? Well, we've been working in northwestern Syria since the conflict began, and we're, we're entering the sort of 12th year now. Uh, such a high levels of vulnerability in that area before the, the disaster. Uh, we're working closely with groups like Dr. Amjad's group, Syrian Amer- American Medical Society. We were working with them before the earthquake and since the earthquake, we've just stepped up what we're doing with them, getting in emergency medicines and medical supplies. We bring them in via Turkey and then they cross cross the checkpoint uh, into northwestern Syria. So 
it's a structure that we already had in place and, and the, the groups that we work with, such as SAMS, are doing fantastic work on the ground in, very difficult situa- in a very difficult situation. So we're really just ramping up our support to provide, you know, what they need to keep the, the medical operation going, to support the hospitals and try to get it to them as, as fast and efficiently as we possibly can. Now, this week, Syrian President Bashar al-Assad agreed to open two more border crossings. What does that mean for your efforts to distribute aid in the country, Gordon? Uh, it, it helps. I mean, the more crossings, the better. I mean, you, you see sort of geopolitics playing out on the ground, you know, where they try to squeeze the entire aid response through one checkpoint. Uh, and, you know, that's difficult at the best of times. But now aid groups are transporting aid to northwestern Syria through the crisis zone in Turkey, where there's been a lot of disruptions and, and damage to roads and bridges. So, you know, the more border checkpoints, the the more points of access to this really devastated region, the better it is for the entire aid community trying to get their supplies into that region. There are the immediate needs, but then there's also the long-term implications of a disaster like this. Here's Jagan Chup again. He's Secretary General of the International Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies. He spoke to the Associated Press after visiting Aleppo, Syria. Because the people were already overwhelmed with the crisis. And of course, earthquake coming now just makes it so much harder. The, the, the shelter situation was already already very, very difficult. Now it makes it much harder. The health situation already under stress, it makes it much harder. Um, the, the shortage of fuel uh, makes it much harder. The recent inflation because of the, the economic crisis makes it much harder. The health system that was heavily impacted by the COVID-19 makes it much harder. So it just compounds already existing hard situation. Dr. Ross, as, as a practicing physician, help us understand the difficulties of providing medical aid, sometimes crisis medical aid, to people in this kind of disaster situation? Yeah, actually, yeah, you got it. It's what we are facing now. It's a crisis within a crisis. It's a disaster within a crisis. And uh, for uh, 12 years, uh, the, the, I mean, we've seen a lot of destruction of infrastructure all over Syria. But we, I'm talking about Northwest now because this is where we concentrate our work, where we have 36 uh, send, uh, medical centers and, and thousands of staff. So the area, there's not much left in the infrastructure. There's uh, a lot of poverty, unemployment, and uh, major displacement. Prior to this earthquake, there, we had over 800,000 still living in tents. A lot of these people who died from this or got affected by the earthquake were displaced at least at least once. Some, some were displaced three times. So now you're adding, on top of everything, you're adding this major earthquake that happens. I've heard different numbers, one in, once in a hundred times or never happened before, whatever. It is, it's a major, major disaster. And so we're trying our best, uh, again, the local organization with the help from the from uh, 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 supporters uh, like Director Leaf and others, many others. Uh, we're able to absorb the shock in the next, in the first uh, two or three days. The, the the first responders, the medicals, the the, the hospitals, and, the, and many others. But now we are left with with uh, about a million and a half of people with no shelter. We have so many orphans. Uh, out of this, we have so many early early signs of mental illnesses like anxiety, panic attacks, insomnia. 
uh, even affecting my staff, my our staff, affecting everybody. You know, the rescuers in the past, where the the organization rescued the 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 victims, now the rescuers need rescued. Mm-hmm. So our staff are victims now. This is compounded the impact of what happened. Gordon, in, in hearing Dr. Ross speak there, understanding, trying to understand what recovery looks like, um, it, it feels overwhelming. Uh, the, the UN High Commissioner for Refugees estimates that 5.3 million Syrians across the, the country could be homeless if viable shelter and aid are not secured. How are you triaging Uh, This situation and deciding what comes today, what comes tomorrow, what comes next week, what comes next month. Yeah, it it is overwhelming. I think when you, as as Dr. Amjad just said, you know, the level of vulnerability leading up to the earthquake, uh, you know, the level of vulnerability that existed on on February 5 and then on February 6, you have this earthquake is huge. So it's such a challenge Uh, for us as an organisation uh, we're responding to the information that we're getting from our partners on the ground, like Dr. Amjad's teams on the ground, you know, what they're needing now. And as that evolves, we change, you know, typically in this this point, it's very much critical care needs, particularly with an earthquake. You have a lot of crush injuries, uh, a lot of really bad wounds. And then as that critical phase um, ends, it'll give way to more population challenges. So, you know, the displaced people uh, living without shelter and, and maybe uh, sanitary conditions and, and access to clean water, we, we risk having disease outbreaks. There's already cholera in northwestern Syria. So all of these challenges will will adjust and adapt as, as the weeks come. Hmm. Dr. Ross, what do you want people to know and remember as the recovery and rebuilding phase of this catastrophe starts? Well, we are uh, just witnessing the, the beginning of the uh, of the disaster. Uh, the people who died, I mean, died, they, they, left, they left behind uh, injured and disabled uh, family members. If they survived, the babies who need the chaos, chaos for, for decades to come. And uh, uh, so w- once we enter the, the, the chronic uh, or the long-term approach, we, we will need mental health shelter, uh, rebuild of infrastructure, infrastructure, education, and, and more, more and more. The $1 billion uh, that was pledged, or at least be collected by you, and would not be enough. Mm-hmm. Maybe enough for a year, but that's it. That's Dr. Amjad Ross, president of the Syrian American Medical Society, and Gordon Wilcox, deputy director of emergency response for direct relief. Thanks to you both. And a promise to you that we will keep checking in on this story. We're rounding up news that made headlines around the world this week. Joining us now, Saleha Mosin, Senior Washington Correspondent at Bloomberg News. Saleha, thanks for joining us. Hi, happy to be here. Also with us, Joyce Karam. Joyce is Senior News Editor at El Monitor. Joyce, it's great to have you. Great to be with you, Jen. And David Rennie. He's the Beijing Bureau Chief for The Economist and co-hosts the podcast Drum Tower. Dave, welcome back. Hello. Well, as the one-year anniversary of Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine approaches, the U.S. is expecting Ukraine to launch a spring offensive. And because of that, you know, we are we all of the partners in the in the Ukraine Defense Contact Group have been working hard to ensure that they have uh, the armored capability, uh, the fires, the sustainment to be able to be effective in creating the effects on the battlefield that they want to create. 
That's U.S. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin speaking Tuesday at a meeting of NATO defense ministers in Brussels. Joyce, why is the U.S. and its allies preparing for this offensive now? Uh, uh, you're right, Jen. Uh, Secretary Austin, Europeans, NATO allies are gearing up for a Russian uh, offensive in uh, in eastern uh, Ukraine. What we're seeing from the ground is Russia positioning its fighter jets, its bombers, uh, its helicopters for what looks like would be a land uh, offensive. Uh, the war seems to be heating uh, up. Uh, we've heard from uh, the head of the mercenary group, uh, Wagner, uh, that their expectation is it may take a year and a half or two years for Russia to take uh, the Donbass. So what we're looking at uh, as the one-year anniversary uh, approaches is uh, the West, mainly led by the U.S., coming together uh, to sustain the armament uh, for U- for Ukraine and to prepare uh, what General Milley said would be a war uh, of, uh, of attrition. Uh, what that means, uh, supplying Ukraine with more Bradley fighting vehicles, uh, uh, Abrams tank, uh, Germany provided the Leopold, uh, Leopold uh, tanks, So uh, right now, uh, 40 leaders are meeting in Munich uh, to uh, just reinforce uh, this message that while the one-year anniversary of the war uh, is here and while the U.S. would support a peaceful uh, solution, negotiations and a settlement is nowhere in sight and it's time to gear up uh, to boost uh, Ukraine defenses as Russia uh, prepares for the spring offensive. Now, Russia Russia battled unsuccessfully for the city of Volodar in eastern Ukraine. And in recent weeks, they've sent thousands of troops. Britain's defense secretary said this on Wednesday, quote, we now estimate 97 percent of the Russian army, the whole Russian army, is in Ukraine, end quote. David, what do we know about the Russian army's capabilities right now when it comes to a ground offensive in Ukraine? It's been a bit of a mixed picture because clearly uh, there's overwhelming evidence Uh, not just from Western military leaders, but also from Russian sources themselves, that the Russian forces on the ground have been just taking unbelievable casualties. And you've had some really horrific reporting about kind of units who barely had any training at all, uh, just being sent into what's, you know, being called a meat grinder in terms of just, you know, 80% of units being wiped out. But we also know that numbers count. And so uh, although the Russians are taking unbelievable losses, We are hearing Ukrainian commanders, we're hearing President Zelensky saying that the fighting is very, very tough. And there is concern that they're going to lose uh, some fairly important towns uh, in eastern Ukraine, which had been useful for not just because they're a front line, but also for supply routes. General Milley, uh, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, has been consistently a kind of interestingly sceptical voice in the Biden administration. And at the same meeting where you played the clip from the defense secretary, uh, General Milley said, you know, they are struggling mightily. Uh, Their leadership and morale is not great. They're taking heavy casualties, but they have numbers. And he reminded everyone that Vladimir Putin called up hundreds of thousands of new soldiers. Now, they're not going to be well trained. Their morale is terrible. But numbers have a certain brutal logic on the battlefield. So it's really interesting that I don't hear any cockiness uh, on the side of the Ukrainians or their Western allies in the face of this spring offensive, because Vladimir Putin is clearly prepared to sacrifice an astonishing terrifying amount of blood uh, and treasure to at least achieve some successes, certainly around this first anniversary of his invasion. We mentioned the Russian mercenary group known as the Wagner Group. 
they'd been recruiting Russian convicts to fight in Ukraine. Now, last week, the group claimed they had stopped recruiting in prisons altogether. CNN's Nick Payton Walsh spoke with Russian convicts who were injured on the front lines, and they say they were directly recruited by the Russian Defense Ministry. A former soldier jailed on drugs charges described being sent back twice to the front while injured. We walk around with bullet wounds, with shrapnel stuck in our legs. No one is being operated on. We were 130 people but have many amputees. There's probably less than 40 of us left. Another, convicted on manslaughter, says half his unit became casualties. Some prisoner advocacy groups and Ukrainian military officials are saying the Russian defense ministry has now taken control of recruiting convicts to fight in Ukraine. They say that includes some foreigners who've been detained in Russia for things like drug charges. Saleha, what more do we know this week about Russian prisoners on the front lines of the war in Ukraine? You know, uh, what we're seeing is that Putin does need to rely on pretty much every person, every human he can find for this war. We're seeing that almost a million, uh, uh, every month, a million shells are being launched at uh, between the opposing sides, Ukraine and Russia. That's not including bullets and landmines and hand grenades. And at the same time, Putin is also losing cash. His economy is starting to suffer. He doesn't have as much, as much revenue. So yes, he is starting to rely more and more on the prisoners that he can uh, force to the front. David, what do we know about the mood in Russia? You said Vladimir Putin is, is willing to call up any and everyone he needs to, to continue putting bodies in this war. How are the Russian people responding? John, it's a very good question. And I think you need to talk about the mood among the elites uh, around uh, the leadership in Russia, and also the regular people. So remember, there was all that reporting that the regular public was going to get uh, you know, increasingly uh, upset by their sons and brothers and husbands being called up, that this was going to make the war real for Russians who had previously been told that it was really a, a special military operation. It's in fact illegal in Russia to call it a war. And the idea was that the professional army was going to do all the fighting, and it really wasn't going to disturb ordinary life for many Russians. Clearly, the conscription made a big difference. Unfortunately, uh, there does seem to be a lot of reporting from colleagues, including mine at The Economist, that public opinion is just in this absolute nationalist kind of mindset. And so there is dissent. Uh, it's very dangerous to voice that dissent. But there is a, a clear, very large number of Russians who are behind this war and who believe absolutely that they're fighting for sort of the survival of Russia against a kind of hostile West and Nazis in Ukraine. The leadership is a very interesting point. So one of the reasons that we think that these convicts uh, are no longer all being recruited by that mercenary group, the Wagner group. They're now being uh, sent as soldiers under the Russian defense ministry, or some of them are sent in now to be in these sort of fake independent separatist militias that are basically controlled by the Russian army. There is some credible reporting that one of the reasons for this shift is that the power of the, uh, the mercenary group, the Wagner group and its boss, who is this kind of oligarch close to Putin, was getting too great and that there's internal tensions between the regular army and this mercenary group, which was becoming a kind of private army. And so, you know, in as much as we can see these tensions and generals getting fired, uh, there is clearly a lot of unhappiness about the direction of this war and the kind of the, the brutal infighting in the circles around Vladimir Putin is being made much worse by the fact that they're struggling on the battlefield.
Well, I want to make sure we note a report released on Tuesday by the State Department and researchers at Yale University. It found that 6,000 Ukrainian children have been taken to so-called integration programs. These programs are in 43 locations across Russia Russia and Crimea. Joyce, what's happening at these camps? And, and remind us who these children are. Uh, Jen, this is a shocking uh, report. Just uh, going through it, it reminds of what we're seeing in uh, in China and the Uyghur camps, uh, the summer camps that North Korea uh, uh, hosts. It's um, it's it's really alarming in a sense, as you mentioned. Uh, at least six thousand Ukrainian children uh, are held in sites in uh, Russian-occupied Crimea and in Russia. Who are these children? Uh, some are uh, actually orphans. Others uh, were in the care of Ukrainian state institution uh, before uh, the Russian invasion, uh, and some are included with their uh, with their parents. What we're seeing is a re-educational uh, process, a uh, a pro-nationalist uh, Russian uh, indoctrination uh, of uh, of these children. Uh, the youngest child that was identified in the report uh, was just four months old. Uh, some of them are as uh, as young as 14 and are getting uh, military training. Uh, there is no evidence uh, yet that these children have been uh, uh, deployed to the battle front as uh, you know, David was mentioning is happening with the conscripts, uh, but but this is very alarming, uh, and uh, this is uh, you know indicatory of a large uh, systemic uh, network and operation that the Russians are are doing on the uh, uh, you know Ukrainian civilians that uh, that end up in Russia uh, beyond the impact of the war and the destruction that we're seeing. There's one more story on the invasion of Ukraine that I'd like to mention from this week. It's from the New York Times about an American paramedic named Pete Reed who was killed in Ukraine. He was there with a team of aid workers helping a wounded civilian when a Russian missile struck and killed him. The paper found that the attack was likely intentional, not an indiscriminate attack as originally thought. Saleha, why is that distinction significant? You know, it, it's still unclear uh, what happened there, it, um, whether the attackers knew if he was with a group of aid workers, uh, the volunteers who were there, they quickly attributed the strike to indiscriminate Russian shelling. Uh, but looking at an analysis that the New York Times did for this story, it shows that he did die in a targeted strike. Um, and what we're going to have here is that if if the, the um, aid workers are struggling to get aid, humanitarian supplies, uh, amid all the missiles that are flying uh, to the groups that, that need this. Uh, we're going to start to have uh, more problems uh, on the humanitarian efforts and more problems on trying to find ways to get that money to really stretch to the people who need it. Well, let's turn now to another story. It's been nearly two weeks since the U.S. shot down what it called a Chinese spy balloon over the coast of South Carolina. China denies it was a spy balloon and this week accused the U.S. of flying balloons over Xinjiang and Tibet. David, while Beijing hasn't produced any evidence of its claims, do we have reason to believe they're credible? Uh, well, the Americans say that they absolutely don't fly uh, balloons over China. And it was really interesting when they came out with this kind of new evidence-free accusation that they'd flown over Xinjiang and Tibet, because that's 
Chinese territory, because previously they had said they flew in Chinese airspace. And there was some doubt about maybe this is because China takes an extremely expansive view of what counts as Chinese airspace. And so maybe they were talking about balloons that the Americans would say were flying over the South China Sea or near Taiwan in international skies. But no, China's doubling and tripling down and saying not only is their balloon an innocent lost weather balloon, and it was outrageous of the Americans to shoot it down and proof of America's uh, weakness and the forces that forced Joe Biden to do ridiculous things like shoot down a balloon. They're now doubling and tripling down and saying that America has sent 10 balloons over. They've given precisely no details of when and where and what, uh, because this is really about propaganda. It's about throwing as much sort of disinformation into the kind of information sphere as they can to comfort their own domestic public opinion, but also people around the world who may not trust or like America. It gives them an excuse to say, OK, the Chinese are pointing out that the Americans are just as bad. And and so this has been their game, plus an absolutely consistent drumbeat of anti-American propaganda, really dramatic for the last week. We've seen the Chinese foreign ministry pounding away on the train derailment in Ohio, calling it an equivalent of Chernobyl, saying that the Western media is proving how wicked it is that it hasn't been reporting this at all, which obviously, as you know, in America, American media has been covering this terrible train disaster. But, you know, for Chinese consumers of, of state media here, they think that the train derailment in Ohio is perhaps the largest disaster for many, many years, and that no one in America knows about it because of wicked American censorship. So that's a kind of level of hysteria that we're seeing here this week in China. David, from your position in Beijing, what's the sense that beyond the propaganda that China has real plans to retaliate against the US for shooting down the balloon? So there has been some bluster about they reserve the right to take uh, some severe actions. They have, in fact, slapped some new sanctions on a couple of American defense contractors uh, that now are not allowed to do any business, defense business in America, which in China, which they weren't already. This is about their sales to Taiwan. Interestingly, if you want to see how pragmatic the Chinese government is, uh, one of the companies who's been sanctioned, one of their subsidiaries is still welcome to sell uh, incredibly important pieces of civilian airliners that China needs to build its first large civilian airliner. So China has been quite canny about this. On the diplomatic front, what's fascinating is the top Chinese diplomat, Wang Yi, is currently on a tour of Europe. He's at the Munich Security Conference at the moment, and we think that he may well meet uh, Secretary of State Antony Blinken. Because remember, one of the pieces of fallout from the shooting down of the Chinese balloon was that Secretary Blinken cancelled at the very last minute a planned trip to Beijing. And so there is a sense that we heard as well from President Biden saying that he sensed the Chinese didn't want to burn every bridge in sight and wanted to maintain relations, that there's a kind of propaganda track, which is partly aimed at their own people. But behind the scenes, potentially, uh, they are keen to try to lower the temperature a little bit on the diplomatic track. So we'll be watching that meeting uh, in Munich if that happens very closely. In Israel, protests continue over proposals by Prime Minister Netanyahu's right-wing government to diminish the power and independence of the judiciary. Joyce, what are the size of these protests and what sort of impact are they having? They've been very big, uh, Jen. We've seen we've seen them since uh, since December. There's another one, uh, big one coming up this week. And uh, what is happening is uh, the new prime minister Bibi Netanyahu and his far right coalition are trying to pass a judicial overhaul that would undermine uh, the Supreme uh, Court and would uh, just uh, uh, constrain uh, the court 
notes when it comes to challenging uh, rules by the prime minister and challenging, uh, uh, you know, practices by uh, cabinet uh, members. Uh, so this has created a big uproar in in the country uh, over the last uh, few weeks. Uh, the law that's that's been the bill that's been proposed just passed a committee in the uh, Israeli parliament and the Knesset uh, this uh, this week. There is another big vote on Monday. Uh, so we will see where uh, that will go. But the opposition uh, to the to the overhaul is is mounting in among the Israeli public. Also, it's not really good uh, for business. Uh, the Israeli news outlet Yadawat uh, Ahranot reported this week that $4 billion have been moved uh, from uh, Israel uh, to foreign banks and there is a risk to uh, to investment as uh, uh, you know as companies as business people uh, look at this and uh, see the democratic uh, decline that it could bring uh, to the uh, to the state of Israel so uh, this coming on uh, you know a controversy about the uh, settlement expansion and other uh, problems that Bibi Netanyahu is having we will see if he will go through with this judi- judicial uh, overhaul or if he will, um, uh, you know, offer a compromise and perhaps uh, narrow down the reforms that are being proposed. Well, Israeli Prime Minister, uh, Israeli President, rather, Isaac Herzog says the state is on the brink of a, quote, constitutional and social collapse. David, uh, how do you think these protests reflect the anxiety over the state of democracy in Israel? Well, I mean, they clearly do, and they're uh, uniting not just opposition political parties, but you know, a very wide swathe of social society groups. You know, feminists and 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 Arab Israeli groups, uh, even you know, uh, groups that have nothing to do with politics normally, and many of them are very uh, suspicious of even the possibility of talks that the government has been offering, in fact, to be hosted by President Herzog designed to kind of see if there's some compromise to be reached, because you saw uh, one of the big opposition leaders saying, no, until this legislative passage through Parliament is frozen, there's no, there's no reason for us to sit down and talk, essentially thinking of it as a trap. But here's the problem. In Israel's bitterly divided politics, we have seen at election after election, the country is split more or less 50-50 down the middle in terms of their views of Benjamin Netanyahu. And so you could have half the country out on the streets protesting against this bill. But in the current state of Israeli politics, if Bibi Netanyahu has 50 plus one, then he can shove this through parliament. And you saw very rowdy scenes in parliament where the committee vote, you know, saw, you know, opposition members of parliament being dragged out of the Knesset by security guards at the order of the committee chairman. There is a sense that Prime Minister Netanyahu, he's got his fragile uh, majority uh, built by including some extremely uh, far right parties for the most extreme government that Israel has ever had. But in this kind of winner-takes-all majoritarian system that Israel is sort of saddled with, you could have very large protests and Prime Minister Netanyahu seems determined to just take advantage of having the votes to ram these changes through. And there, I think that's why you hear President Herzog talking about a, com- a complete kind of social crisis facing the country. Joyce, is there any commentary on the protests in this move by Bibi Netanyahu from Palestine? 
I mean, the Palestinians are dealing with their own tension with the Israelis now. We've seeing, uh, we've seen multiple raids uh, happen in the West Bank. We've seen uh, uh, Hamas uh, fire rockets uh, on Israel. Uh, for the Palestinians, uh, you know, Bibi Netanyahu was never uh, a friend or a favorite leader, and they look at this government by a lot. Uh, you know, a lot of weariness, a lot of anxiety. There is a vote uh, at the United Nations also on on Monday uh, condemning uh, uh, the settlement expansion uh, in Israel. This vote is proposed by uh, the United Arab Emirates. The Palestinians are very much supporting it. Uh, so uh, from the Palestinian point of view, they would welcome uh, a change in, in government uh, uh, in Israel, uh, but their main concerns remain, uh, you know, with the settlement expansion and uh, Israeli practices in the West Bank and in Gaza. Well, let's continue to the ongoing fallout of a BBC documentary about India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi. Weeks after the release of the controversial documentary, Indian tax agents raided BBC newsrooms in Mumbai and New Delhi, seizing documents and phones of employees. This week, a spokesperson for the BJP, Modi's political party, held a press conference in response to the BBC raids. India is a country which gives an opportunity to every organization, every individual. As long as you are willing to abide by the constitution of our country, as long as you do not have a hidden agenda, as long as you don't spew venom, and as long as the facts that you bring out in public domain and you disseminate have a basis, it can't be whims and fancies of a corporation. And this cannot be tolerated. Taleha, briefly remind us what this documentary was about and why there's concern about it for Modi. Yeah, this has been a really interesting uh, story to follow. What the documentary did was it revived a pretty controversial uh, part of Modi's political career. is back in 2002 when he was in Gujarat, which is a part of uh, a Western state in India. And he was, I believe, chief minister at the time. And he was accused then of not doing enough to stop some violence um, in India's post-independence uh, sort of uh, sphere. A lot of riots had broken out between um, Hindus, and which are the majority of the region, and the minorities, which are Muslims. And like more than hundreds, I think close to a thousand people uh, were killed in violence that went on for many, many days. Um, another couple of hundred people went missing. And so this documentary brought back up these two decade old accusations. And the um, Indian government was quite upset. They banned that documentary. I think it comes in two or three parts. Uh, they banned it from being aired. They're using their own like emergency legal powers to block even clips of it being circulated on TikTok and Twitter and YouTube. And uh, the BBC is having to stand up for its reporting, saying that, look, we're a trusted, independent organization. We are going to protect and stand by our colleagues. And so it's turned into quite the tussle that's gone global. David, tell us more about the BBC's response, because if memory serves me correctly, the documentary does include representatives from the BJP, but the Modi administration did not take part. That's right. And and let's, you know, let's not just say that Modi didn't do enough to stop these riots. The accusation... Uh, including from the American government at the time, was that he had created an atmosphere of hysterical Hindu nationalism 
and essentially impunity that led Hindu mobs to believe that they could attack uh, Muslims in revenge for some earlier violence uh, with impunity. And you saw these terrible riots, as, as, as Joyce said. Remember that it was such a bad uh, uh, situation that the American government at the time uh, banned Narendra Modi from traveling to the US. He was on a visa banned list as someone who had fallen foul of a law uh, on uh, religious violence and religious extremism. And it was only when he became prime minister and it became sort of untenable to ban the prime minister of the world's largest democracy from America that he came off the visa banned list. So the BBC isn't just kind of roaming around on the fringes of kind of minority opinion. It is exploring an extremely important event that is also linked to Narendra Modi's current appeal as prime minister, which is extremely explicitly to the Hindu majority of India. And instead of the kind of the, the, the post-independence legacy of, of India as a secular republic made up of many religions, he is pushing these extremely inflammatory ideas about Hindu nationalism. So the BBC itself says that it's cooperating uh, with this investigation. Uh, this is not the first time that the tax authorities in India have been used to uh, bully uh, organizations, not just media organizations, uh, NGOs like Oxfam have had tax raids. I will say that the British government has been pretty supine. Uh, the Prime Minister uh, Rishi Sunak said that, I can't remember his exact form of words, but it was uh, kind of damp lettuce uh, in terms of uh, his level of criticism of India. Why is that? Because India is very rich. India is a democracy. It's a potential hedge against China. Even the, the White House, uh, you saw uh, the, the National Security Council putting out some pretty feeble, uh, and the State Department, some pretty feeble statements on this because India is too important to upset right now. And so unfortunately, the BBC does not have the backing that it should do. Joyce, what, what larger questions does this raise about press freedom in India? Big questions, uh, Jen. The, the, what David is talking about, the slant to populism, to authoritarianism, is not something new we're seeing with Modi. It's just now targeting the BBC. Uh, the Indian government has targeted several uh, Indian uh, outlets, but this is the first time they go after a foreign media uh, outlet in the caliber and the standing of the BBC. Uh, I was looking at uh, Reporters Without borders and uh, their latest report in 2022 shows that India fell to 150 in, in press uh, freedom. That's uh, the lowest ever rank uh, you know, of 180 countries. Uh, for just perspective, Russia is a little bit below India at 155 and uh, the U.S. is at 42. Uh, so this is uh, worrisome if you're looking at the trend that uh, Modi is taking, the populist rhetoric. Uh, you just can't win there as a media uh, organization. And uh, the the Western emphasis on, uh, you know, a, a rivalry with China puts them in a tougher position in countering uh, India and defending uh, the BBC. Well, I want to quickly touch on some tech news. Google is releasing a new campaign in Germany that they hope will counteract online mis- and disinformation. They're calling it pre-bunking, and it's already showing some promising results in Eastern Europe. David, really briefly, how does it work? It's really interesting. They do these videos which are designed to be uh, easy and accessible, and they don't say this particular theory is wicked and wrong. They say this is how conspiracy theorists try and trick you. They may exaggerate. They may take things out of context. 
Uh, they may offer you false comparisons. They'll fear monger. And there is some evidence that when they tested this in some Eastern European countries, Poland, Slovakia, Czech Republic, and also actually uh, Facebook's owner Meta did some similar work on COVID-19 conspiracy theories in the States. You can train people to recognize when they're being targeted by conspiracy theorists and disinformation. And actually, it seems to be pretty effective. And so it's interesting and good news, I think, that Google now wants to roll this out in more places and immediately in Germany. Well, I want to touch on the World Bank. They'll soon be under new leadership. David Malpass, World Bank president since 2019, announced he's resigning before the end of his term in June. He made headlines for his comments about climate change, which drew criticism from former Vice President Al Gore, among others. Here he is in September of last year being questioned by New York Times climate reporter David Gellis about those comments. Let me just be as clear as I can. Do you accept the scientific consensus that the man-made burning of fossil fuels is rapidly and dangerously warming the planet. I, I, I don't know if everyone wants to comment on that. At what we are doing is having impactful I, projects that reduce will, greenhouse will you answer gas the emissions. We have a mission of a World Bank that's powerful. Will you answer the question? Is that... I'm, I don't even know. I'm not a scientist, and that is not a question so Al Gore can put. I don't know why it stays on the stage. What we need to do is move forward with impactful projects. So, Leha, really briefly, Malpass hasn't outlined any reason behind his departure, but what do we know? Yeah, he hasn't outlined a reason. He actually did reach out to reporters to put out a statement that he has, quote, no regrets at all, end quote, for his time at the World Bank. Um, I'm pretty sure he's uh, a little frustrated about how much attention is being given to those climate comments. I think the bottom line is, is that he did step down one year early, but I think he saw the writing on the wall. The the president, uh, President Joe Biden's administration, he comes in and didn't want to shake things up at the IMF and World Bank right away too quickly. Otherwise, it becomes too much of a Democrat versus American Republican partisan debate, but now they wanted they do want to put in someone at the helm of the World Bank who is a very firm and staunch supporter of climate change initiatives. I want to thank my guest, Saleha Mosin. She's senior Washington correspondent at Bloomberg, Joyce Karam, senior news editor at Al Monitor, and David Rennie. He's the Beijing bureau chief for The Economist. He also co-hosts the podcast Drum Tower. Saleha, Joyce, David, thanks. Mike Kidd is our sound designer and engineer. Chris Castano is our digital editor. Maya Garg is our senior supervising producer. Aileen Humphreys is the producer and editor of 1A On Demand with help from Matthew Simonson. And Barb Anguiano produces our podcast. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk more soon. This is 1A. Oh, like